We're in a series called Origins, the beginning of everything. And of course, we're just taking a trip through, we won't make it all the way through Genesis, but we're taking a trip through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. We started by examining some of the evidence that God exists and that he created everything from nothing. Only God is not created. And we've looked at a lot of other things. We can't look at every detail as we go through. But last Sunday, we began looking at Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, the first brothers. Unfortunately, between the first brothers, there was also the first murder. What we talked about last week was the origin of religion as it exists apart from faith. And the word religion is not a bad word if it speaks of the outward expression of our inward true faith in the true God, then religion is a good word. But if we make it all about ourselves, about anything other than the true God of heaven, then that's the thing that people don't like when they use religion in a bad sense. Last week we concluded with this verse, Genesis chapter four, verse eight. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. <clears throat> Bad place to stop. That's where we finished last week. Today, we're going to move on to another topic, and that topic is this, the origin of culture, which is called, in the next to the last book of the Bible, a book uh, called Jude, Jude, one of the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, called The Way of Cain. And so we give it that subtitle. There's nothing, again, wrong with culture like religion except what it's based on. We have no way of knowing how long Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden before they rebelled against God, were expelled from the garden, and began to age. The passage we're going to read today indicates that a very advanced and complex civilization developed on the earth before it was destroyed by the great flood that wiped out everything on the planet. That civilization, which we might call the lost world, by the way, is what we're gonna look at today. It may not be as exciting as Jurassic Park uh, is, but it is the world where dinosaurs roamed, and we may talk about dinosaurs, we will talk about dinosaurs in a week or two or something of that nature. Can't go through the book of Genesis without mentioning dinosaurs. But for today, we're going to look at the development of this culture in the lost world. So Cain had just murdered Abel, and God comes to visit, and we have Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he very arrogantly said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, once again, God's question does not mean that he didn't know what happened, but it was meant to draw Cain out, to teach him a lesson, to get him to confess his sin and to show some remorse for what had happened. Instead, Cain lied and questioned God's right to even ask him that question. By the way, in one sense, Cain did not know where Abel was. So let's think about this. Abel was the first human being to ever die. Therefore, he was the first resident of the afterlife, uh, this place that in the Hebrew is called Sheol, which is just the, uh, 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 the abode of the departed, of the dead. In the New Testament, the word Hades is used, but we like the word paradise that's used in the New Testament, where 
Cain was there waiting or Abel was there waiting for the coming of the Savior and the time when all things would be, be made right because Abel was obviously, by, because of God's statements in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a man of faith. And so Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This, of course, is God speaking to Cain, this time in judgment rather than in mercy. Cain had been able to quiet his brother's voice, but he could not stop the voice of his brother's blood crying out to God. By the way, Cain was a farmer, uh, and so I think it's reasonable to assume that he had dug a hole and that he had buried his murdered brother in that hole, thinking, well, now nobody will ever know what happened but you, he couldn't cover up what he had done. So God pronounces judgment on Cain for this most evil deed that he, he had done. Verse 11, so now God said, you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12, when you till the ground, this is the curse on you, when you till the ground, it, will no, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive, and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. That phrase in verse 11, cursed from the earth, is a little difficult to understand, but I think it's described for us in verse 12. Uh, first of all, Cain would no longer be able to make his living as a farmer. The ground would no longer yield its strength to him. That's, what, that's his job. That was his life's work, being a farmer. And God said, you're no longer going to be able to make a living that way. Second, he was banished and homeless, a fugitive and a vagabond, a vagrant and a wanderer. A restless wanderer is the way that he would spend the rest of his life. Adam and Eve had been driven out of the garden of God, and now Cain is driven even farther away from that original habitation. Verse 13, and Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. We still see no remorse, no repentance, but Cain's rebellious attitude turns to despair, kind of like we do today. You know, we we are relentless in going on our own way. We're relentless in, I'm going to make my own decisions. We're relentless in, I know what, better than what God wants for me. And then it turns to despair when we start to suffer the consequences of all the bad decisions that we make. What we often overlook is the same thing that, that Cain overlooked, and that is repentance. That is turning to God and saying, I am wrong. I, I, I want to put that sin behind me. I want to turn my back on that. I confess it to you and I ask you to cleanse me from that. You don't hear that coming from his mouth and oftentimes we forget about it. We feel bad. We wish it hadn't happened. We think this is too hard, but we forget to confess our sins to God. Verse 14, surely... This is still Cain talking to the Lord. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground where I made my living. I shall be hidden from your face, from God's face. I shall be a fugitive and a bag of vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Now, Cain repeats God's statement of punishment with one addition. One thing that God did not say that Cain adds. He was not just driven away from the place near the Garden of Eden where his family had lived for all of their life, where all of Adam's descendants were residing, 
but he was also driven away from God's face, away from the presence and the protection of God, an even greater thing. What a, what a great picture, or maybe what an awful picture of every person who has ever decided to walk on this earth without God, who's decided, I'm going to go my own way, I'm going to disregard the very God of the universe, the almighty God, the creator of everything. I'm going to do things my own way, and you walk alone, banished and homeless. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, Cain said, this is too much. People are going to kill me when they find me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. This is not about whether capital punishment is right or wrong. This is about God saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so the Lord says to Cain, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, however that would work out. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Graciously, God puts some sort of a mark or some kind of a sign upon Cain to warn anyone who might seek to avenge the death of Abel. That, that word that's translated mark, uh, we don't know what it was. It's also translated as a sign, a token, evidence, an omen, a monument. Could mean could have been anything. Read one guy said could mean the dog that followed along beside Cain. We don't know what the mark uh, was, but it served two purposes. Number one, it protected Cain from everyone's vengeance, except God. And number two, it was a continual reminder to Cain and whoever was around him that he was guilty. He had murdered his brother the person he should have loved most uh, on the, the earth. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So Cain keeps moving east, away from the presence of the Lord. This land called Nod, actually Nod uh, is, a, is a better uh, ancient pronunciation of the word. Uh, we don't know where it was. It's not important that we know where it was. Maybe it cannot be identified because that whole world has been wiped out. But the word itself means vagrancy or wandering or exile. So this was a land of restless wandering, a land of fugitives from God, a land from, of people who had been separated from God. Verse 17, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Evidently, Cain was building a city. God said, you're going to wander around, but he was building a city when Enoch was born, and so he named the city for his son. Cain may have continued to wander. By the way, after his son grew up and took over the city, Cain probably just continued to wander around. And by the way, where'd Cain get his wife, right? That's, maybe you never thought about that, but that's a question that's been asked for years. Where'd Cain get his wife? Well, she was a descendant of Adam. That's the only place anybody could get anybody. Adam had a lot of sons and a lot of daughters, and he married a, a sister or a niece or somebody like that. Verse 18, continuing with the lineage, to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methushael, and Methushael begat Lamech. So are named the first descendants of Cain. 
The name of God had not been completely forgotten, but is seen in these names that end in L. That's the reason I highlighted them. So they were still talking about God. A lot of people still talk about God, even though he plays no part uh, in their life. And so begins the narrative that traces the lineage of Cain. So what becomes of a society that rebels against God that leaves the land of blessings in angry defiance of the laws of God and the sacrifices of God. What will happen to a society like that? Well, in this case, it prospers. It did really well. Uh, but Scripture tells us as followers of Christ, as followers of God, not to envy the wicked nor to follow their way. God allowed the descendants of Cain and, and the entire earth to prosper in their own earthbound kind of a way, their own uh, short-term kind of a way. They produced music and weapons and agricultural devices and cities. They produced culture. That's the reason we're talking about the origin of culture today. Uh, it was their only recourse in a bitter, cursed world. By the way, there's also a line of godly people with people like Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and even Jesus. Some people, just a remnant of the remnant, do not go overboard in living an affluent, good life, but are concerned with spiritual things. And we'll get to them eventually. But for today, we're going to examine the lineage of Cain, the line of people who developed a culture in defiance of God. But before we continue, I just want to set the stage, tell you a few more things about what the world might have been like back then. According to the scholarly, but probably somewhat flawed chronology of a guy by the name of Bishop James Usher who lived in the 17th century, that's the 1600s, there was about 1656 years between the fall of Adam and the great flood. Now, Bishop Usher is the one who came up with 4004 as the date of creation. I'm not saying the world was created in 4004 B.C. I, I think it might be several years older than that. But according to Bishop Usher's chronology, the minimal amount of time that existed between the fall of Adam and the flood was 16, 1,656 years. Conditions on the earth during that time were very different than conditions on the earth are now. Conditions on the earth at that time would have promoted longevity. That is, people would have lived a lot longer just like the Bible says they would. For instance, there was a blanket of water vapor or ice surrounding the earth's atmosphere that filtered out mutation causing ultraviolet rays and created a greenhouse effect. We didn't get a chance to read publicly here Genesis 1, 6 through 8 that talks about how that God separated the waters from the waters and he lifted waters up and the space in between the waters he called the firmament or the sky or the expanse or the lifted up space. This caused uniformity of climate, an equality of temperature, no violent storm, probably no ice caps on either, at either pole. And those things together increased the health and the longevity of people, the, the filtering out, the, the, the uh, greenhouse effect, the uniform climate. Add to that the fact that humans were closer to the original perfect gene pool. You know, the reason that people can't 
marry close relatives these days by law in that we have the same genetic problems. And that's the reason you get more birth defects and craziness, for lack of a better expression. But those people that lived back there were closest to the first two people who had no genetic abnormalities at all. Another factor was the absence of disease-producing organisms, which would have developed over time due to the degeneration of beneficial organisms that God had created. People lived a very long time, according to Scripture, and there's reasons to indicate why they would have been able to live so long. Population could have grown very large very quickly. Genesis chapter 5 says that the patriarchs, the original heads of families, lived hundreds of years and had sons and daughters. Now, this is just an exercise, not done by me, but assuming that each family averaged six children, and if you're having children over a 100-year period of time, might have had more than that, three sons and three daughters, that each one lived to maturity, and each one had six children, and assuming a, an average lifespan of about 400 years, after 800 years on this planet, the population of the whole planet would have been about 120,000 people. Not very many for a whole planet. But after 1,656 years, guess what the population would have been just from a mathematical standpoint? About 7 billion pretty close to the population of the planet right now. Isn't that amazing? Uh, about 7 billion people or more could have populated this planet by the time the flood came along. And by the way, another interesting thing is that in the lost world, there would have been more habitable land than there is today because less of the planet was covered by water. There were fewer mountains and other uninhabitable areas like like places that are covered with ice. And so, huge population, more habitable land. So, Cain left the presence of God. Cain left the paradise of God. We've traced Cain and his descend descendants to a man by the name of Lamech. Lamech seems to be the key guy in the development of culture. So we're going to look at three things today. Characteristics of the way of Cain. And here's the first thing we learn about Lamech is moral disorder, the first characteristic of this culture that was developed apart from God. Moral disorder. Genesis 4.19 says this, then Lamech took for himself two wives. First guy recorded to do anything like that. Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. This is the origin of bigamy, polygamy, and from there, all forms of sexual deviance. Clearly, Lamech violated God's plan of one man and one woman becoming one flesh. That's God's plan for everybody to last for a lifetime. The names of his wives indicate sensual attraction. Ada means jewel or ornament or adorned or beautiful. And Zella means shady or seduction or melody or desirable. So Lamech developed and promoted a new morality. And it's the same morality that Satan promotes today, a morality of adultery and premarital sex and divorce and homosexuality and drunkenness and all those kinds of things. And there's always a price to pay 
by the individuals who practice it and by the society that it affects. And, and by the way, even God's people eventually accept all these practices. For instance, the practice of polygamy. Solomon, you remember him, wisest guy that ever lived, uh, wrote a couple books in the Bible, had 700 wives and 300 concubines or near wives. By the way, polygamy as well as other perversions were often practiced for very practical purposes. It seemed like the thing to do. For instance, one of the reasons that, that culture practiced polygamy is because sometimes there weren't enough guys around. You know, there weren't enough men for all the women to have a husband. They got killed in war or disease or whatever. And in agrarian societies, there was a need to produce more sons. So one way you could do that is have more wives and produce more sons so they could protect the farm and, and work the farm. And then there was the high death rate among women during childbirth. Childbirth's pretty tough from what I hear. Never have witnessed it myself. But uh, a lot of women died in childbirth. Look, you had multiple wives. You didn't have to go looking for somebody to take care of those kids and have more kids. You know, you just, next one in line, just move on up. That was a practical reason behind it. In Solomon's case, he wanted to forge alliances with other nations. And so he married princesses from other nations and formed alliances with those nations. And by his own admission, just what he wanted to do. It just appealed to him. He wanted to try it. And so he did it because he was powerful and he was rich and he could do anything he wanted to do. Think about this statement here. What seems like the right thing is never the right thing if it violates God's plans. I don't know if that's a good way to say it, but what seems like the right thing is never the right thing if it violates God's plan. You better check out what the plan of God is. If you violate the plan, no matter how practical it seems, no matter how right it seems, it can't be. Cannot violate the plan of God. So the first characteristic of this culture, apart from God, the way of Cain was moral disorder. Here's the second. This is not necessarily bad here. The second one is marvelous discovery. Technology. Increased knowledge or a part of culture. However, they've often been used by people as a substitute for God. They're not bad in themselves. But like any other thing, uh, like social media, which is not bad in itself, if we substitute it for God, it becomes a bad thing. And so Genesis 4.20 says this. And Ada, this is wife number one, bore Jabel, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Jabel means wanderer. He invented the first RV, the first tent, the first portable house, so that you could take it with you on your wanderings. Of course, there's nothing bad with having an RV, is there? As long as it's not more important than God. As long as you don't use it instead of worshiping God. Jabel also developed a system for domesticating animals and perhaps commercially breeding animals. Raising livestock is the first stage in animal domestication which involves human control of breeding, food, food supply, and territory. And livestock would have been ultimately sheep, goats, donkeys, uh, cows, uh, uh, camels, those kinds of things. While God did not permit at this time God did not permit the eating of animals. You read about what's going on, Jabel may have led many into disobeying God's command. 
in this area. The right to eat animal flesh came after the flood, not before the flood. It's also possible that uh, Jabel controlled the industry and developed marketing in this diverse, complex society. So you had Jabel dwelled in tents and livestock. Verse 21, Genesis 4, 21, his brother's name was Jubal. I guess his mom couldn't come up with anything better. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. Jubal was interested in music rather than commerce. His inventive genius originated both stringed and wind instruments. Now, like the domestication of animals, music is not bad in and of itself. When used to worship God, in fact, music is ordained of God. Music is wonderful when used for the right purpose. But when used to replace God, music leads to evil. Jubal was probably, and I'm going out a little bit on this, but he was probably in the entertainment business. Uh, one thing you know about music, music bypasses the con conscious mind and speaks directly to the subconscious. Satan is the genius behind the entertainment business that robs us of our mind, our soul, and our initiative today and wants to make us a bunch of robots just walking around with a glaze on our eyes. Jubal was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. Verse 22, Genesis 4, 22. As for Zillah, now this is wife number two. As for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Tubal Cain originated and controlled probably metallurgy. Perhaps he controlled the union. I'm not sure exactly how he, but he was the teacher of all these people. The power created by metal tools and weapons would have aided society greatly. Thought, side thought. Iron, in the history of the working with metals, iron was the last metal to be forged, melted and forged in post-flood history. But we're going back to pre-flood. We're going back before the flood. And before the flood, they had learned to work with iron in the antediluvian world, in the world before the great flood, in the lost world, they learned to work with all kinds of metals. The three brothers represent these three things. Prosperity, in, uh, pleasure, and power. Prosperity in the domestication of animals, pleasure in music, power in the use of iron implements, tools, and weapons. Now, it's interesting that a sister is mentioned here. She can't possibly have been the only woman that was born. Had to be other sisters around. Niyama means pleasantness or stream, and we can only speculate what her specialty might have been in the ancient world. But marvelous discover, moral disorder in this marvelous discovery, and one more thing, one more characteristic of the way of Cain, militant defiance, in your face God, and in your face everybody else. That was characteristic of this society. Genesis 4.23 says this, then Lamech, said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. Verse 24. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. The arrogance and the pride of Lamech is seen in these verses, which are a fragment of an ancient song. So he sang about himself. 
<laughs> made up a song, had somebody, maybe his son, who was good with music, wrote a song about the old man. And the idea in the song is this, whoever inflicts a wound or strife on me, whether man or youth, I will put him to death. And for every injury done to my person, I will take 10 times more vengeance than that which, which God promised to avenge the murder of my ancestor Cain. In other words, I'm taking over for God. I am God. I'm the greatest that there is. Everybody sing to me. Everybody look to me. Lamech's song glorifies human independence and human power and human vengeance. I'm going to take vengeance into my own hand. Lamech did it his way, or maybe it was Satan's way that he did it. But his pride was based on prosperity, pleasure, and power. Lamech and the people around him thought they had everything and that they did not need God. But life isn't always as it seems. Life is fragile. Their society was disintegrating, was ripe for judgment. And the book of Genesis clearly talks about God's judgment on them. So let's close with these thoughts right here. This is a thought I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago. Throughout Scripture, the essence of sin is to put human judgment above God's command. I think I can do it better than God can. I know God said this. That probably worked for those people over there, but I'm special. I have these insights, and so I think I'll do it my way. Human judgment above God's command. If you have tried to do things your own way, and you find that somehow it always gets messed up, I want to encourage you, try God's way. And here's God's way, John 3, 16. Think about Billy Graham. You know, we're talking about how that, uh, he passed away. Uh, John 3, 16 was uh, Dr. Billy Graham's answer to almost every question. For God so loved the world. God loved the entire world so much. I don't love the entire world. I have trouble. I want to. I want to. I just can't quite do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one of a kind, his unique son, that's Jesus, the very God of heaven, second person of the Trinity who came down to die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Try it God's way. God's way is this. You can't do it on yourself. On, on your own. You can try, but you will mess up every time you try to be strong enough on your own. Try it God's way. Confess your sins to Jesus Christ. Receive him as your savior. Put your life in his hands. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to take you into his family. Ask him to give you the gift of eternal life. Then identify with him. Identify with him by publicly being baptized, which is God's way of a person saying to the world, I have trusted Christ as my Savior. Just as Christ died, was buried, rose on the third day, so I also have experienced that. I have died in him, and I raised to live a different kind of a life. And then join others to serve him on the lampstand of his church. Well, we're together, we can shine our light into the entire world. That's what, that's what works. That's what God wants of us. Cult, music is good. Art is good. Uh, all sorts of the accomplishments of human beings are great. It amazes me. I, I read some poetry 
And I say, how in the world could anybody come up with that? I see a tool that's been designed uh, or a machine, and I say, how is it possible that people could come up with such an amazing thing? I think about the fact that with slide rules and and ancient computers, uh, people put a man on the moon and brought him back again. Absolutely mind-boggling that people can accomplish things like that. Gene and I were traveling one time with a group, and we were in Athens, Greece, and I walked out on the balcony of this hotel uh, the morning after we arrived, and I looked up the street, and there was the Parthenon, the ancient temple of the Parthenon, such a great work of art, and I was just amazed to look up there and see that thing that I'd only seen in books for years. What people can accomplish is amazing. But when we put that ahead of God, whether it's something we can do or something that is given to us or whatever, then it becomes ugly and nasty and bad and accomplishes evil tasks rather than good tasks. Try it God's way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I know you're here with me, with us as a group, and I thank you for that. I ask for your presence with us. I pray for your grace, for your mercy. I ask you to give us the faith that you want us to have. Give us the grace to make good decisions for you. I thank you for all that you are and all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.